God, speak, for your servants are listening. Please grow our faith now as we look at Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, faith. You don't have to be a Christian to talk about faith or sing about faith. Here's some popular songs, old and new. You've got to have faith, true faith, eyes of faith, blind faith, my faith in you, factory of faith. I like this one, busload of faith. And my favourite, keep the faith. Now, I could go on. The Google list was very long. But I do wonder what on earth those songs are actually singing about. Faith seems to be some kind of virtue, maybe more a, a feeling. It's left as vague as. And you have to ask the question, faith in what exactly? But how about us? I mean, we're here at church. We clearly have some interest in faith. Is our faith solid? Is it well grounded? We just got the results of our National Church Life Survey. You might remember last year sitting down and answering all those questions. We just got the results. To the question, uh, faith in God is an important part of who I am, 96% of MBM answered yes. We agree or strongly agree. Faith is a big theme of Matthew chapter 8. You may have picked that up as we heard it just now. Some unlikely people, like a leper or a foreign soldier, are commended for their faith. And yet some likely people, the disciples, are scolded for being of little faith. What would Jesus say to you and I? Faith is not some magical, mysterious thing. It's not a feeling, although I tell you it makes a big difference to how you feel. It's simply trust. It's simply depending in something. Right now we have faith in this building. Without a second thought, we walked in here, perhaps took one look at it and went, I think the architects and the builders seem to know what they're doing. We're just trusting that this roof is not about to come down on our heads. Perhaps you had faith in somebody who drove you here. This morning, that may or may not have been wise faith, but you had faith in that person. This chapter makes us think about the strength of our faith in Jesus. It's a chapter to help us grow our faith. Not by us trying harder to believe, uh, not by us talking ourselves into feeling more certain. We grow our faith here by reflecting on the question that the disciples ask in the boat they say of Jesus, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? Christian faith grows in confidence, in assurance, in strength, in value, when it looks harder at Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at six little episodes from the life of Jesus that are going to help fuel our faith. Episode number one is the leper. The leper. Jesus is willing and able. Now, to be a leper was to be on a kind of a death row, really. He had an incurable disease that not only took his physical health, but pretty much took away every other part of his life as well. Leprosy is a disease that eats away at your flesh and causes deformities. It was at least mildly contagious and it was incurable back then. 
But also, the law of Israel said that if you had a skin disease like leprosy, you would have to live outside of town by yourself, wear torn clothes. And if you came across people, you had to warn them, yelling out, unclean, unclean, as they approached. And so if this guy had a family, he would have been separated from them. His wife, effectively a widow. His kids, functionally orphans. In Thailand, uh, until just a matter of a few decades ago, lepers were still quite common. And when we lived there, I met an older man uh, with most of his nose missing, his fingers, most of them missing. Now cured through medicine that was given to him uh, by Christians. The Christians were the courageous ones who were happy to work with lepers, pretty much the only ones that would. And the Christians also gave him the message of salvation through Jesus. And so there's a guy who lost his nose, lost his fingers, gained Christ. And he was a happy man. It was great. This leper here is an outcast, he's unaccepted, unwanted, hopeless, perhaps ashamed. And so this move that he makes is a very, very bold one to approach Jesus. He would have been like parting, Moses parting the Red Sea as he walked through the crowd. There's this man in, in kind of bloodied rags walking through, everybody jumping out of the way. And he falls on his knees in verse 2, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And you can almost hear the gasp of the crowd at that moment. How dare you risk our lives and his, the teacher. But then in slow motion, you can just see their faces changing as they watch Jesus reach out his hand and touch this leper. Touch him to take on his burden, to wear his sickness. He touched him. And this absolute grace and power that this man would have felt as Jesus said the words, I am willing, be clean. Willing and able. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Just amazing, just the seeds of faith that would have been sown in the hearts of that crowd looking on that day. Jesus came with God's power to undo the decay of the fall into sin back in the Garden of Eden, to undo the sickness and death that went with that. He came with God's heart. I mean, just stop and hear those words again. I am willing. I am willing. I wonder how much you need to hear those words this morning. I'm willing. What do you think of Jesus? Do you think of him as one who was willing and able to deal with your most eroding and profound and shameful sickness, your sin, and all the humiliation that it feeds? Perhaps you live with deep shame in your mind, kind of when you walk into a crowd of people, maybe when you walked in this morning, you feel like crying out, unclean, unclean. And Jesus would say to you, fix your eyes on me, I am willing. The second portrait of Jesus is about the centurion. 
that Jesus is for all peoples. Now, if the leper was an outcast, this guy is the opposite. A leader of 80 Roman soldiers, a foreigner, and yet one with great power in Israel over any Israelite subject. Because to Rome, Israel was a a state that was subject to them. And yet he calls Jesus Lord. He calls him Lord and he comes to him to solve an impossible problem, a slave who has become paralysed, who is suffering terribly. And the centurion has heard what Jesus can do and he approaches for help. And there's two remarkable things about this story. Firstly, this guy amazes Jesus. For everyone else, they're amazed at Jesus. This guy flips it on its head. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The centurion amazes the amazer. He recognises Jesus' authority. Now, the authority of Caesar would have been, you know, he understood was delegated to him, right? So when that centurion speaks, his words have the weight as if Caesar was saying them. And he immediately understands that similarly, Jesus speaks with the weight of God himself. He sees Jesus the same way and recognises God's authority in him. And he's humble enough to know that he is unworthy for Jesus to come into his house. And he just asked Jesus to say the word and heal by remote control. And the thing is, Jesus does exactly that right then. The other remarkable thing is the centurion is a foreigner. And Jesus sees his faith as a forerunner to the faith of probably most of us here this morning who are not Jews, who will be sitting at the feast on the last day with God. And so verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if the Jews thought they had a kind of a free pass into heaven because of their birth certificate, Jesus flips that on its head. People will come from all over the world, from the east, like maybe Australia, from the west, like maybe Africa, and they'll take their place in the kingdom of heaven based purely on their response to Jesus, not their birth. And the Jews might have had the inside lane in this race, but they'll be thrown out into darkness if they refuse their Messiah. And by the way, you would have noticed Jesus paints hell as a horror story here, doesn't he? Darkness, literally it says the weeping, the gnashing of teeth. His warning must not be lost on us. It's a terrible warning. But know this, Jesus is for all peoples, but only to those who want him and respond in faith. Well, third little episode, the fulfilment. Jesus is the servant. It's a really interesting one. In verse 15, Jesus pops into Peter's house for a cuppa. While he's there, he notices uh, Peter's wife's mother, 
has a fever, is in bed, touches her, instantly healed. And typical Middle Eastern mum, she gets straight back up, starts serving the guests. Then in verse 16, he ends up healing half the district. In verse 17, uh, he brings out the most important lesson of all, that Jesus is the servant Messiah of Israel. This is what Matthew says in verse 17. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now Matthew only has to quote this one little verse to unlock eight centuries of anticipation as Israel waited for their Messiah. Eight centuries ago, Isaiah had prophesied to them about a Messiah to come, a powerful king. And then he talks about another person, a servant, who would save the outcast and the sick by dying for them, paying for their sin, rising again to justify them, to put them right with God. Isaiah had spoken about this king, he spoke about this servant, and for the careful reader of Isaiah, by the time you get to the end of the book, you realise they are one and the same person. That Isaiah is speaking of a servant king. That's who the Messiah would be. And Matthew is screaming out to his own people saying, he's here, look, here he is. Touching a leper, healing the, uh, the, the, this Gentile servant, this Gentile servant, healing a woman, bearing their diseases, all those people from town. In Isaiah chapter 61, the servant king speaks, and let's hear what he says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? I mean, the Jesus who spoke on the mountain, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn the brokenhearted. The Jesus who frees the leper here, who, who heals that centurion's servant, the Messiah has come, the servant king whose healings were just a taste, just a taste of what he would do ultimately for the world through his death and resurrection. And the passage that Matthew quotes goes on to emphasise the most profound healing when the servant wins forgiveness for us. And we can't go on before we stop and read this part of Isaiah 53. This is gold. Here we go. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. Friends, this is very good news. When we see Jesus as the prophesied servant king, our faith grows. 
our faith grows. Fourth little episode is about two disciples who approach Jesus with a message Jesus demands to be our first priority. There's no cheap Christianity. I'm just going to put my hand up as a teenager to follow Jesus and then practically ignore him the rest of my life, go to church occasionally to solve my guilt. No. Jesus meets this guy. The guy comes up to him. He wants in on Jesus' crowd and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus spells out the cost of that for him and for us. That following Jesus can be costly. It's a real journey. And so he says in verse 20, Jesus replied, the foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To be a disciple of Jesus, you might end up going without worldly home and security. It could be costly for him and for us. I mean, we've just seen the Borgs and we've just seen for the sake of following Jesus. Uh, someone else might lose their home in many countries around the world, lose home and possessions because they are Christian. We have to stop worshipping safe as houses kind of security that this world offers of our possessions and our properties. That's no security anyway come Judgment Day. We have safe as Jesus security and the Son of Man, and this is something you can explore in your growth group this week, the Son of Man may look like a frail human. It's an amazing title that he uses of himself, but he packs a punch come Judgment Day. He packs a punch. We need security in Jesus primarily, whatever the earthly cost. Now, another guy comes up to Jesus. He wants to bury his father. Seems like a very reasonable request. Jesus shocks. Follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. You must take first priority, even over your mum and dad. Right? Just as he shocked in chapter 5 when he said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Here again, he uses hyperbole, this kind of exaggerated language to make his point to shock that we might count the cost. But it's a real thing. Your mum and dad might hate you for following Jesus. right? You might have to go against some things that they say if what they say contradicts Jesus. They're not going to like that. Now, of course... We're going to keep loving our families as we can. I think that's a given. <laughs> Christians are actually very, very good at doing that. We'll usually be the ones at the family funeral, of course, but not always. I remember our first year in Thailand as missionaries, we had not one, not two, but three grandparents die within six weeks. And we couldn't get back. We couldn't get back for their funerals. We missed them all. Fifth episode, the storm, that Jesus is both human and God. Jesus is so human that he sleeps through a fierce storm in a small boat and he's so divine that he wakes up and he tells the storm to stop and it does is complete calm. What kind of man is this, they ask, 
Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now their fear was a sign of their immaturity. They didn't believe that being with the Messiah might actually mean that their boat wasn't going to sink, that God might have had plans for this man who was asleep in their boat, that he was going to protect the Messiah before his time. But they did turn to Jesus and that bit was correct. And the memory of this event, imagine what that would have done to their faith, fortifying it lifelong. And then, sixthly, there's the demon-possessed men. The possessed. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it stands out that as Jesus reveals his identity to the disciples, these demons already know. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know Jesus is the eternal God who has become man. They know him as God the Son. And they even know that their days are numbered, that there's a time of torture that lies for them in the future. And ironically, when they beg Jesus that uh, he might allow them to go into the herd of pigs, what do the pigs do? They run down the lake uh, bank and drown in the lake foreshadowing their future torture anyway, when they will be thrown into a lake of burning fire, according to the closing chapters of Revelation. This is a graphic foretaste of Judgment Day. The Son of God is judge, judge of all creation, including spiritual powers, including you, including me. The Son of God is also very, very clearly here a compassionate saviour, isn't he? I mean, rescuing those two men from Satan's grip. And I guess our choice is to meet him as judge or to meet him first as saviour. People of the town, sadly, they refuse him and they plead with him to leave their region. They value their pigs more than Jesus. They value swine over the saviour. And they kind of show themselves just as enslaved as those two men used to be who were demon-possessed. So there you have it, six aspects of one Jesus, six facets of the one diamond, if you like, six practical demonstrations of his power and authority. So what should we do? Well, you want to put your faith in him. You want to forsake all to follow him. You want to seek to grow in faith every day. You want to put your faith in him. You want to forsake all to follow him. You want to grow in faith every day. Nothing less will do. But how? Well, one way is just so simple. And maybe these booklets that you receive today are going to help. It's just read Matthew. Read Matthew. I mentioned about our uh, National Church Life survey and uh, here's what you said about the value of reading the Bible for yourself. 64% feel their personal devotional life has had a large or very large impact on their growth in faith. In other words, two-thirds of us see the value of taking time out yourself to read the Bible and to pray. But there's a catch. You have to actually do it for it to work. And so can I urge you, have a go. 
have a go. You're never too young or too old. Just maybe leave a Bible on the breakfast table and read it while you eat. Or maybe you're a train commuter, use that time. Um, maybe you're not a reader at all and you want to actually download a, uh, a Bible app onto your phone and listen through the Bible. You could use your car trip for that. You could use your walk for that. Make some space in your day to hear God speak to you through his word and to pray. Small decision, isn't it? But it'll make your faith grow in leaps and bounds as you focus on the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus. And we can help each other with this too as well. So you can join a growth group, as was mentioned earlier in the service, to read your Bible and pray with others. So come and talk to me at the New Year flag if you're keen on that. Or join us at the next belonging on March 4. You can meet informally with a friend. And just read the Bible together. Um, as we heard last week, that could be with other students at school. It could be with uh, somebody that you're going out with. It could be with uh, one of your family members or a workmate. Here's what we said about doing this, again, in the National Church Life Survey. Now, most of us, if you look at that graph, would give it a go. Most of us are either sitting in the blue or the, the aqua dark blue on the right-hand side. Most of us would give it a shot, so can I encourage you, let's do it. In fact, maybe look for someone who's less confident than you in reading the Bible and uh, try and move them from the red to the yellow or the yellow to the blue or whatever it is. Uh, and again, this booklet actually has some really simple Bible study methods that you could have a shot at. Matthew 8 has shown us the power of Jesus. The question is, will you Build on what we've seen today. Will you look harder at Jesus through Matthew's gospel? Will you grow your own faith? Let me pray for us. Well, dear Heavenly Father, the obvious here is that we need your help to grow our faith. But Father, help us to keep in step with your Spirit, to open our Bibles. So let you speak to us. Father, confront us with all that you are, all that the Lord Jesus is, that our faith might grow as we look at the object of our faith. We see his majesty, his strength, his power, as we come to fear him, as we come to love him. Father God, grow our faith that we might be strong in you, that we might be a strong church, in you. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.